Today we continue our journey with Christ to the cross and through Holy Week. Last week we did a lot of background on the temple and looked at Jesus kicking people out of there and shutting the business down. The, for that story, the background of the place was really important. That was Monday of Holy Week. In the days that follow, a number of smaller things happen. Jesus and the disciples continue to travel in and out of the city. Jesus curses the fig tree. He gets into more conflict than the temple. Um, he's teaching all the time, even as he walks back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany. The Sanhedrin are finalizing their plans to uh, have one of his disciples betray him so that they can arrest him uh, privately and have him killed. <coughs> and as we come to Wednesday and Thursday, uh, the attention of the disciples turns to celebrating the Passover together. So let's pick up the story in Luke 22, starting in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, in the last few sermons, and in a few upcoming sermons, the location is really, really important to understanding the story. Uh, and, and I've emphasized in my sermons the, lo the particular locations in, in Israel and around Jerusalem. The upper room is a little different because, truthfully, we don't know where the upper room was. We can say some important things about it, but, but the exact location, we're not sure. It's called an upper room, but in, in some of the words used to describe it could mean like a guest room on the back of a house. But the understanding is that, that it was a guest room that was above the regular living area. So uh, there'd be the main floor, and a lot of houses would just have the main floor where the family would eat, and a lower level maybe where the animals would be kept. And then they might have a, a larger area up top. That would be the guest room. Um, in, remember in the Christmas story, the, the, the guest room is full. There's not, there's not an inn in Bethlehem. It's probably referring to either the back room or the upper room, the guest room. And so uh, the disciples are told, uh, in particular Peter and John, to go find a man carrying a water jug. So this might indicate that the upper room is kind of near a water source in Jerusalem. But there are a number of those, so we can't quite be sure where this is. The early church believed that this gathering was on Mount Zion, the southwestern hill of Jerusalem. Although some have argued it would have been closer to Gethsemane and the city of David, we just can't be sure. Today in Jerusalem, there's a, a building called the Cynical, 
which is used to mark this place. Now, this building is not that impressive. In fact, you, you don't, if it wasn't for a little sign, you wouldn't really pick up on it. It's in the, amongst a number of other buildings. And, and it's clearly not the exact room that Jesus and his disciples were in because it was very clearly built during the Crusades. So it's not the room. But it could be about where the location would have been. The room would have been a simple space. We know the disciples there were there, the apostles, the, the twelve, with Jesus. We're not quite sure if maybe some others were there. A lot of times Jesus traveled in a little larger group. Um, the tables would have been arranged in what's called a triclinium. Triclinium was kind of a U-shaped table, uh, set of tables, so that a servant or somebody who was serving the meal could get in the middle of the table to serve everyone else. This is a Roman thing, but we know that uh, we, we know that Jews also use this kind of thing, this kind of setup. In, in fact, there's a, a beautiful mosaic from the city of Sepphoris, right near Nazareth, where Jesus uh, was, was raised. And uh, this mosaic has been called the Mona Lisa of Galilee. It's this beautiful, beautiful mosaic. Um, but what it was was the mosaic that would be in the center of the triclinium. So the table would be around, and then there'd be this really pretty mosaic built into the floor. So that one's interesting because the question is, it was built right around the time of the life of Joseph and Jesus. And it's right in the town next door. So might Jesus or, and or Joseph have worked on it? We call him a carpenter, but he was probably more of a, he's a tecton, so more of a contractor. And that's the kind of thing he might have done. So might Jesus or Joseph have been involved in, uh, in building this thing? So normally in, a Roman, in the Roman setting, you would recline. You would kind of lay down so the table was low to the ground. Jews primarily ate uh, seated in chairs, but at the Passover they didn't. They also reclined. So you can imagine this U-shaped table, Jesus at the head of the table, his disciples around the other sides, and uh, all sort of reclining, leaning against pillows, leaning against each other. Uh, this is a long family meal where it goes on for a long time. You have a lot of fun. It also means that, uh, uh, you know, if you've ever seen Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper where the table is real straight, they're always on one side. I always thought that was the stupidest painting because why would you all sit on one side of the table? Um, but what he's done is he's taken the triclinium and he's straightened it out so that you can see everybody there. So the disciples find this upper room. The, the, it's already furnished, so there's already a triclinium there. They, they set up, they get ready for the meal, and there was a lot to get ready. You, you had a lot of cooking and preparing uh, to do. And Jesus said that he had earnestly been waiting to eat this Passover meal with them before he suffers. The context of Passover is really important for understanding what happens here. Okay, remember the story. Passover is related to the celebration of Exodus, of freedom from slavery. And there were ten plagues that God used to, to weaken Pharaoh's heart to let the people go. But, but it was the last one, the Passover, that really got them out. And what, would hap what happened was if anyone... Uh, slaughtered a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost, then the angel of death would pass over, hence Passover, the house and would leave everybody alone. If you didn't have that, all the firstborn in that household, that'd be children, animals, any firstborn, uh, would be killed. And so it was with this final act that God finally brings the people out of slavery. To this day, most Jews, even if they are not religious, and many are secular, uh, still celebrate the Passover meal together as a family. Okay, in those days, 
uh, in Jesus' day, a lamb was sacrificed at the temple, which means all day you'd be sacrificing all these different lambs, maybe even a couple days, depending on where you were from. Um, but after the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, then the meal comes around the family. It becomes this major table celebration because there's no temple to sacrifice on. So families gather around. They tell the story and then do certain things. And, and every family does that a little different. Okay, Kind of like Christmas traditions. There's certain things that most families do. There's some that might be special and unique uh, to your family. And, and we don't know exactly um, what the Passover, the Seder, the gathering of the Passover meal was like in Jesus' day. It formalizes more after the temple is destroyed. But we, but we know certain things. That you would have heard a telling of the story. That uh, according to Exodus, you were supposed to, to eat it reclining because you were relaxed. Because you weren't worried about the angel of death. You're supposed to wear your cloak. So normally uh, you would be able to take your belt off. and take. But in this, you, you, at Passover, you eat ready to go. Because in the morning, you believe that God is going to free you from slavery. You did not eat any leaven or, or yeast in your bread because it wouldn't have had time in the in the morning to, to rise. So you had to cook unleavened, have unleavened bread so you could take it with you when you came into freedom. So it's also called the festival of unleavened bread. You, you ate with your shoes on so that you were ready to go. You ate bitter herbs as part of the celebration to remember the bitterness of slavery. Remember, too, this is a family meal. So, so if any of the disciples had family traveling with them, which is quite possible for Passover, they would be in the room, too. It would be a long meal. Lots of laughing and storytelling and eating. Imagine this group of guys who have been together for three years. A lot of them like high school and college age. You can, you can just imagine the jokes and the laughter and the silliness. The kind of evening that your, your face hurts and your belly hurts from laughing and smiling so much. And in the New Testament, seven key things happen there. Okay, seven key things. And, and because there's seven, I'm just going to talk about them briefly. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. That's number one. It was customary to wash your feet before a nice meal. You know, or, but, and normally a household servant would do that. You could imagine if you walked barefoot all the time in the desert, your feet could get kind of dirty. Um, there's also a part of the celebration where you would wash your hands. Any, any Jewish meal, you would do that. Passover makes a big deal out of that. But in, in an amazing act of humility, Jesus does the washing. And he washes the feet. And the, the disciples don't quite know what to do this, with this. This is awkward for them. Peter even says, I should be washing your feet. Jesus says, no, unless I wash you, you won't, you won't be clean. So Jesus cleans them, and then gives them a command that they should lead like that, that they should do likewise. And the word for commandment, by the way, in Latin is where we get the word mandi from Maundy Thursday. Commandments, a mandate. That's where the word comes from. So number one, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Number two, Jesus predicts that Judas will betray him. Okay, now when Jesus says someone is going to betray him, the disciples all start talking like, surely not me, and they all start to argue. Uh, but Judas, who is apparently sitting next to Jesus, is predicted to be the one because he dipped his bread into the cup with Jesus or dipped into the bitter herbs with Jesus. It seems from the gospel betrayals that, that Judas was increasingly becoming a problem. Okay, John says that he was stealing money um, 
and uh, there's a there's a selfishness to uh, to to uh, Judas as he's going along. Some have tried to argue that Judas was trying to force Jesus' hands or is actually being really loyal. Um, I don't buy it. I don't think the Bible allows you that it jibes with that. But what amazes me about this is not just that Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him, but he sits down at a table with him. He shares the Passover meal with him. Number three, Jesus blesses the bread and the cup. It seems like it was part of a meal, any meal, to break bread or to share a cup. At the Passover Seder, a particular piece of bread is broken in half and is hidden. Okay, so it's it's called the afikoman, and, and we don't know if this is exactly, this is sort of developing in Jesus' time. But you would take the bread, you would break it, and half of it would get hidden. And then normally a child or somebody from the party would have to find that, and they could ransom it back. So they you'd... They could come and they would get a prize for having found it. And the meal can't be over until we find the bread. And so what exactly is the meaning that Jesus is going after here? The breaking of him, his own body, definitely. The idea of ransom, that he is ransoming with the breaking of his body. Maybe the fact that he is going to return later. We're not always that sure. Maybe Jesus means a lot of these things. In a Passover Seder today, a cup is raised four times, and each time you drink from the cup. In the days of Jesus, we think there were maybe three cups instead of four. But either way, the cup after supper, it's always, it says in the Gospels, after supper, the cup after supper was the cup that represented the blood that was over the doorpost of that lamb. And so when Jesus holds that cup up and says, this cup is my blood, and it's the new covenant, it's the new arrangement between God and humanity, He's clearly identifying himself in that cup with the lamb's blood. Okay, number four. The disciples discuss their importance. In the first century in a triclinium, where you sat in the Roman world was important. Okay, so in the center of the U, okay, at the top of the U or bottom of the U, depending on how you're looking at it, would be where you would go, uh, the most important, the leader of the banquet. And then their most important people would be next to them. And then the further around the triclinium or the next layer of triclinium you went, way in the back of the room are the least important people. So the disciples at some point start debating who is the least important. We, we think maybe, again, Judas is on one side, John on the other. Maybe Peter is along the side and gets a little jealous here. But of course, uh, after this long debate... Jesus tells them that they got to start thinking about things differently because it's not about who's most important. He says, let the greatest be the youngest. The leader be the one who serves. Number five, Jesus predicts the, the denial of Peter. We're going to look at this more when we get to the trials of Jesus. But all the disciples are going to abandon him. But, but in particular, Peter, who is so adamant that he would never, Jesus makes this prediction saying that today... This very night, before the cock crows twice, Peter would deny him three times. And so, um, so he, he knows exactly when Peter is going to do this. Number six, Jesus talks about buying a sword. This is a weird passage we're not as familiar with. Let me read it. Luke 22, 36 and 37. But he, Jesus, said to them, But now let one who has a money bag take it. And likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. 
for what is written about me has its fulfillment. So, so Jesus said, yeah, okay, you better go buy a sword. Now, earlier in their ministry, he said, don't take a sword. Don't, don't take anything. But now he's saying sword. Why? What's different? Well, what's really different here is that the game is changing. Okay, the disciples have had three years of crowds that love Jesus. Okay, that run around because they want food, because they want healing, because they want to hear these amazing teachings. But now, as he's going to the cross, it's going to change, and they're going to be disliked, and they're going to be hunted. I think he's trying to prepare the disciples for that. Number seven, Jesus gives a long discourse in the Gospel of John. Okay, in John, actually, chapters 13 through 17, five of the 21 chapters of John happen in the upper room. Now, there's one little line in there where Jesus says something about, okay, let's leave. And so we think some of that happens as they're getting ready to leave and on their way out of the upper room. Okay, but again, multiple chapters. Let me run through and highlight just a few parts of the upper room discourse. Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. He promises the Holy Spirit and talks a lot about the whole work of the Holy Spirit. He teaches that he is the true vine and that the disciples should abide in him. He teaches that the world will hate the disciples and resist them, and has, but he has overcome the world. He teaches that he is leaving them for in, in, in a little while, and then there will be stress, but they will find comfort. And then finally in John 17, Jesus prays a prayer, often called the high priestly prayer, and he prays for the disciples. And, and most importantly, Part of that prayer is about those who will believe in him because of the word of the disciples. In other words, Christ followers that are going to believe because of the testimony. In other words, you and me. Jesus prays for you and me in the upper room. So go for yourself this week and read John 17, 20 through 26. John 17, 20 through 26, where Jesus prays for you in the upper room. So we can imagine this night. So many things going on, and, and in between these stories, uh, the laughter, the joking, the telling of the Passover story, the sharing of memories from the last few years. And then at the end, they, they sing a hymn, probably one of the Hallel Psalms, and head to Gethsemane. Always interesting to me to think about Jesus singing a hymn. We don't have pictures of Jesus singing. We don't think about Jesus singing, but there it is. He sings. So, what is this evening all about? Like, if we look at it as a whole, what's Jesus trying to do? Jesus was preparing them for what he was going to do. He wanted them to know that he would be dying, that he knew he was going to be dying, and he wanted them to know that there was purpose in his dying and that the death wasn't the end. So he's trying to prepare them for what he's going to do. I think he's also trying to prepare them for what they're going to do. They're going to betray him, abandon him, deny him, scatter. It's going to be a really hard week for them. Really hard couple days for them. He's trying to get them prepared for that. And I think he's trying to prepare them for what, what it's going to mean to live on the other side of the cross. He's trying to prepare them for the coming of the Holy Spirit and, and uh, to, to not be liked and some of those challenges that they're going to face. And I think when he goes to Gethsemane, he's going to be preparing himself. That's next week. I think Gethsemane is about him getting himself ready. I think the upper room is about him getting the disciples ready. Now, interestingly, in the Bible, there are a couple other things that happen in upper rooms. And we wonder if they're the same upper room. Okay, remember, Jesus has a resurrection appearance 
in an upper room where they're locked in this upper room and Jesus comes and appears to them. Pentecost happens in an upper room. Okay, and, and so when the Holy Spirit comes, it comes in the upper room. And tradition has it that this is the same upper room. And if that's the case, think about the resurrected Lord and the coming of the Holy Spirit be con being connected to the same place. Now, now this, this room in, in uh, this building in Israel called the Cenacle, it actually has another layer of tradition behind it. That there's this upper room, but below that is what's called the tomb of King David. Now, now the, the tomb is actually not the tomb of King David as we know it. We're not quite sure where the tomb of King David is, but, but it's about where it was, and it represents that. And, and um, we think maybe the Pentecost happened there because Peter says in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So the thought is maybe Peter is quite near or even in an upper room above the, the, the celebration space of the tomb of David. We, we can't know for sure all these connections with the site or if it really is this site, but it's neat to think about. It's neat to help us connect with all the symbolism of what this upper room is really all about. To think about it, connecting with the resurrection and with Pentecost and with David in the past. Because I think as we read about the upper room, we, we are faced with the same things that the disciples are. We're trying to understand what Jesus' death and resurrection is all about. We're trying to understand the ways in which we abandon him and deny him and betray him and fail him and struggle to live out this life. And, and we're, we're always trying to understand what it means to live in light of the cross and what happens. It was not easy for the disciples, and it's not easy for us either. So may we consider the upper room, and as Jesus prepared the disciples, so may he prepare us for Easter.